five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of the Space Economy Podcast, my returning guest is Blaine Curcio. As we did late last year, the topic of discussion is all things commercial from China's space program. This includes new details on China's broadband mega constellation, launch, spaceports, and Earth observation. Hi, Blaine. Uh, it's been several months since you were last on the podcast to talk about China's space program, focusing on the commercial space sector. Of course, talking about the commercial space sector also means talking about the government and its plans. So let's get started. Let's start with constellations, and in particular, low Earth orbit. Since we last spoke, there's been some news around China's version of Starlink, I call it that, called Guawang. What, what do we know about the size of the pro- proposed constellation, how the government is planning on organizing it. Hey, Mark. Well, thanks a lot for having me back. It's uh, it's really really cool to speak with you again, and uh, quite a lot has happened. So indeed, we uh, we have a lot to get into. Um, so excellent first topic of the the, const- the China's mega constellation. Um, so I guess the first part of your question in terms of the. Um, the size of the proposed constellation. So I would say here we still don't have a huge amount of additional detail other than the ITU filings that have been made over the past, say, year or so, uh, well, I guess year or two, um, with the GW prefix. There's the GW1, GW1S, I believe, and GW2, if I'm not wrong. Um, And so those three, you're looking at something like 12 or 13,000 satellites and uh, over seven kind of sub-constellations. And so this is, I guess, probably the the sort of full version of, of whatever mega-constellation is envisioned. Um, but I, I suspect that we will likely see this rolled out in phases or otherwise in, in some uh, fairly slower way than, let's say, Starlink is, is currently uh, rolling it out. So um, again, not, not a whole lot of additional information uh, in terms of specifics on the, the constellation size. But uh, again, we're looking at quite a large constellation, I think, the, the so-called Guolong project. Um, so that being said, on the on the kind of organizational side, there have been some significant updates over the last couple of months. And so uh, in particular, what we saw in late April, I believe, possibly early May, was the establishment of this company, China SatNet, you could call it, so Zhongguo Xinwang. Uh, And so basically, this is a a state-owned enterprise that was established as a company that is directly controlled by SASAC. And SASAC is the central government kind of, um, I guess, a commission that controls the 100 or so largest state-owned enterprises. Uh, And when I say controlled, I mean kind of has some administrative purview over, but does not necessarily get directly involved in day-to-day things. Um, But that would include companies like CASC, the big state-owned space company, and, and KASIC, and the three big telecommunication companies. And so the fact that we've seen this SatNet company established as a directly controlled sort of subsidiary of SASAC and at implicitly at this and, and also, I guess, explicitly at the same level as CASC and KASIC and the three telcos, uh, this basically, I think, is, is a, an indication of the central government's importance that they're assigning to this low Earth orbit broadband constellation in the sense that they're basically saying, um, we're going to make you at the same level as the telcos and CASC and KASIC. And that has pretty significant ramifications uh, in the sense that they in theory, would have a lot more um, control over things like sourcing, compo- you know, buying satellites or buying rockets. So if the large constellation had been a CASC subsidiary, for example, it would have been highly motivated. It would have probably been buying most of its satellites from CASC or related companies and most of its rockets from CASC or related companies and et cetera. But by putting it at the same level as all of those companies, it makes it in theory, easier to buy, let's say, some satellites from CASC and also some satellites from KASIC and some rockets from whomever, and and basically just buying from uh, the best of either, I guess, the state or, um, I guess, an interesting question would be also the the commercial side of the sector, which is evolving quite rapidly. So so, um, long answer to your your first question, I guess, but uh, uh, there's been a lot of things going on. so let's unpack that just a little bit, and, and just so that the under the audience understands, SASAC is the state 
Owned Assets Supervision and Administration Commission, just so that people know what the acronym is. Basically, like you said, that top level government organization that is controls the umbrella of 100, you know, the 100 or so large uh, state owned uh, enterprises. And Huawang, uh, which we're talking about, the, the name that um, uh, that's been out there, um, is what we're calling the SATNET. Uh, the satellite, or, you know, SatNet company, I suppose, is is is, is the name actually. Sorry, uh, as opposed to the, the constellation, and uh, and as we've seen with other constellations like OneWeb or SpaceX and Kuiper, that you know we have ITU filings, but when it actually comes time to building, launching, and getting things up there, you know, we don't know exactly how many satellites it's going to be because it changes over time, depending on what's happening, how the technology evolves. I mean, look at SpaceX. I mean, they're the, uh, with Starlink, they're the, uh, the poster boys, if you will, of, well, you know what, we're, we're going to change things up now. Right. You know, in terms of our orbits, in terms of the technology, which, of course, creates all sorts of um, issues, which other companies like OneWeb take, uh, uh, you know, and others, you know, will, will say, hey, I, I, you can't just change up what you're doing based on, you know, what you're experiencing. Uh, you've, you've actually told the FCC what you're going to do. So anyway, there's going to be lots of uh, changes as we go along. But I think, like you said, the important thing here is that uh, the Chinese government has deemed this as a, a really important project and said, we're going to put you at this level, we're going to start funding you, and then we're going to start uh, doing, um, getting this uh, constellation going. So in terms of, let's say, a time frame, what kind of time frame? Because sometimes, you know, China's very methodical, but at the same time, if they want to move fast, they can move fast on certain things. So what are we talking about in terms of time frame of actually getting something designed, built, and launched? Right. So this is, uh, it's an interesting question. So I guess we need to derive a little bit from some, you know, reading of the tea leaves, I guess we, we could call it. But but basically, I mean, one piece of evidence that we have in, in absence of any specific because basically, just just to, I guess to, the short answer is there is no very well defined time frame that has been laid out beyond I guess the ITU requirements for for deploying a constellation I, I guess and, and and that would be not until they start deploying it I, I suppose but but in terms of a, an actual timeline it has not really been well defined uh, that being said we've seen so again uh, earlier this year at the, what's called the two sessions so basically this major government con uh, conference or I guess two conferences that takes place in uh, in mid March in Beijing. Um, so the the Chinese government published their their 14 five year plan, which is the period of 2021 to 2025. And within that period, it, it has been uh, I guess specified that they want to have deployed uh, a global uh, telecommunications constellation and also a, a global sat nav and, and Earth observation constellation. Although those are both already done, so I guess that's um, they can already check check those off the list. But but uh, in terms of uh, the, the global telecommunications constellation um, that. I mean, in theory, they could be referring to, say, uh, a number of China SATCOM geostationary satellites that are, you know, global or, or something like that. But I, I think it it's pretty much implied to be a global, you know, VO constellation, you know, broadband constellation. Um, now, whether that would be the full twelve thousand satellites, I, I I doubt within you know the twenty twenty five time frame. But um, I would say it's it's if I were to let's say uh, if I were to put a mean, you know, a pro I mean, you you, you might get some couple thousand satellites deployed within the next uh, five or, or so years um, of this constellation. Because, I mean, really at the, at the moment, and I, I guess without wanting to go too much into a, a, a rabbit hole here, but you've already seen a fair amount of the, the industrial base either built or or nearly completed, um, at least at an integration level. Now, there's still a lot of requirement, I think, at a sort of first and second tier supplier level. But, but I think in general, you've seen a lot of infrastructure already built. So I think you can... You'd expect to see a, a deployment uh, over the next handful of years. Now, uh, I also note that, uh, and I'll just give you you guys a shout out. You've got a new uh, newsletter uh, that you're publishing on a weekly basis. Yes, yes, so the Dongfang Hour, uh, China Aerospace and Space newsletter every uh, every week. Yeah, and they can sign up. Can they sign up through your Twitter account? Because I noticed you, you said you're using a Twitter service for this, the uh, the review. 
so I would refer people to the website, I think, to, to sign up. We've, we've only just started, so I, I, I should know that. But I, I don't think it's uh, – I don't think – I would go to the website, donfonghower.com. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, in that newsletter and, and related to what we're talking about, um, there was some news about uh, SatNet in terms of uh, some of the people that are going to be involved in that. So um, – what can you can do? Can you tell us anything about uh, the new chairman, the general director, some of the board members that are that are there? Are they known? <laughs> known outside of the yes. China, I should say. So, I mean, in terms of, I mean, they're, they're all, as you'd expect, kind of people who who come from the handful of universities that produce most of the top leadership in China's sort of space and aerospace, and and I guess in, in the case of CETC, uh, kind of electronics and related components industries um and they, they all have kind of the the various party pedigrees or related things and I, I would think the i would say the interesting thing about the um the directors and the chairman and general manager are again the the diversity of companies that are represented so you see uh zhang dongchen who has a, a pretty long career in, in cetc's 54th institute which is uh, a company that develops among other things terminals for tiantong uh which is sort of like a a almost like a Chinese version of Inmarsat, you could say. But basically, it's a global uh, narrowband, um, I guess, Chinese version of Inmarsat 4, you, I, I would say. It, it certainly does not have the capabilities of like a global express or even in the, the future constellation. But but conceptually, it's a global um, narrowband communications constellation. And so digressing, uh, Zhang Dongchen, the, the chairman, uh, he comes from uh, a comp- one of the companies that develops the the terminals for, for that, as an example. Um, and then, you know, Yang Baoha comes from, from CASC and, and uh, particularly the Fifth Academy, which is um, the satellite manufacturing subsidiary of, of CASC. So you have, you know, some representation from a company that makes basically the most sophisticated communication satellites in China. Um, and then, you know, Li Xiaochun basically from KASIC, uh, which is, uh, again, the sort of secondary space um uh, state-run enterprise in China, which is quite strong in, in commercial space areas. So, so again, you have this diversity, and I think that's going to allow for some element, uh, in theory at least, of you know, getting the best of from all, all all relevant parties, basically, as opposed to being biased towards any one. Because again, I, I think this is something that that um, is historically. It, it cannot it cannot be repeated often enough that you know in China that they, they say you know cask is space and space is cask and like literally the the Chinese name of cask is is China space like Zhongguo Hangtian and so the idea that a Leo broadband constellation would be heavily sort of biased towards cask in terms of procurement of everything um, I think is quite it's a risk that the the powers that be are quite cognizant of and so I think there's a real um, sense of wanting to achieve balance in terms of the leadership and, and have various stakeholders represented, represented, which I think is an interesting, um, I think it's a pretty clever solution. Like, honestly, this is something that I, I, I talked about with the old structure, which was basically having a company where like the, the, the structure for Hong Yen, for example, the, the company that was meant to operate that, that constellation, its shareholders were China Telecom and Cask and some Cask subsidiaries. So basically, all of these companies could exert influence as shareholders, whereas now you have a company that's completely at the very top level of government. It is headed by a management team from these different companies, but there's just a very different dynamic there. And again, I think they've, they've strived for, for balance, which I think is an interesting way of, of trying to align incentives. And I think just one last point that I'll mention on this is um, the the political imperative that has been given to this, this constellation, which we don't really know how much imperative that is, but let's assume it's an, um, enough to make it such a high-level company. I mean, th- this creates, I think, an interesting incentive for the people that are running the show at SatNet in the sense that if they're being given this really big, important project of a fourth telecoms company in, in addition to the big three telcos, except from space, um, that's a really big project. And if they do well, I assume that would be quite good for their political careers. And so, um, again, I think there's an interesting alignment of incentives and, and trying to make it a very kind of um, 
I don't know, starting from scratch, because because I think I, I know I had said one last point, but a really, really last point. Um, one of the things that you oftentimes see when China tries to do things like reform and opening up, which is basically a kind of catch all phrase that they use for changing industries that are rather state owned and making them a bit more innovative or otherwise competitive. Um, one of the issues you see is that you have so many vested interests that are big state owned enterprises that don't want to see things change. And the reform and opening up is happening to these companies. But now you have this totally starting from zero company that has people from these companies, other, you know, these, these powers that be, but that are now totally independent. So, so again, in theory. So again, I think that's, um, that'll be interesting to watch. Um, yeah. Well, I want to explore this just a little bit more before we move on to, to some other topics, because it is, it, it, it is a, a very big enterprise uh, and it could have uh, um, some interesting uh, repercussions down the road. Um, one thing that uh, I've come to learn with uh, China is how regional strategically some of these pieces are placed. Right um, now, if I understand correctly, Satnet is actually being headquartered in a new, in an area that where traditionally there isn't really any much in the way of aerospace, and so this is going to create a new sort of regional opening up, if you will, of that particular piece of the puzzle. Am, am I right in that? Um, that that. Yes, but the, I think there's a bigger like the, the, I guess the more interesting thing is that so basically the, the area where, where Satnet is going to be headquartered, which is Xi'an, it's uh, south southwest of Beijing by like maybe a uh, hundred ish kilometers. Um, this is about four years ago, the central government uh, designated this as the sort of a new sort of capital city. Basically, they were going to move some of the non-core uh, national governmental functions to Xiong'an from Beijing, because basically Beijing is so crowded, and, and especially like sort of the central part of Beijing and all these big state-owned enterprises and ministries and bureaus and all these entities, they have their headquarters, and it, every one of them is a whole city block, basically. And so there's just, there's, a, you know, and, and it's always expanding outward, and it's just, it's a, you know, and so they, the government wanted to, and they still want to, uh, move some non-core central government functions from Beijing to Xiong'an, and and I I don't really know what is and is not non-core, but but that's you know anyway, um, and and the Sat Satnet is the first um, national level state-owned enterprise, the first kind of directly controlled by SASAC, to be headquartered in Xiong'an, and and so that's um, I. I don't know to what extent I, I need to go to Xiong'an when the borders reopen. I, the closest I've been is Tianjin, but um, but to an extent, I think being outside of Beijing, it should give them again a little bit more independence. Or you know, vis-a-vis a cast or Kasich or the telcos. Um, and I, I do think also that Xiong'an. I mean, it's being developed as a kind of smart city. Um, it's being developed with a well, yeah, I guess as a as a smart city, whatever that uh, whatever that would, would mean in that context. Um, and you're going to see, I think, a lot more governmental functions relocate there. So it'll be interesting to see how that interplay influences uh, you know that. But yeah. I think I got it confused with another corporate entity that you had talked about recently on a podcast who was moving to a new region in China where there really wasn't any aerospace. And I can't remember who it was now, but if I remember, I'll, I'll bring it up because I thought it was interesting that they were putting this, uh, I, maybe it was a satellite manufacturing uh, new facility. But maybe, anyway. maybe Geely or uh, when they, they're they moving to Guangzhou where there's less aerospace and space, Geely or possibly Cast Space. There have been a couple of big companies that have moved down to Guangzhou. There's so much going first. on. <laughs> it's there's oh well there's the, literally I I and I we can discuss more later but the uh, the the Euroconsult's China Quarter One uh, report that we just published we we have a, a regional space cluster database that we include with the premium version of that and there's literally 15 clusters that are really quite a you know deep dive and, and you know it's each one is is a different province for the most part um, and even that was kind of just the first tier of clusters like if I really you know I, I'm thinking for for next quarter we may uh, expand it to kind of the, the top say 30 or something which would be uh, almost all of them but yeah there's a lot going on now all right so one last uh, thought on on, on satnet 
uh, uh, the glowing constellation. And that is, and this is totally, uh, you know, us extrapolating analysis, uh, the reading the tea leaves, if you will. Um, since it's going to be global coverage, uh, I'm curious to hear if you've heard anything about the service being available in other countries. Uh, let's just start with that. Right. So I, the short answer is no, there has not been any kind of any uh, specific, you know, stuff written about how they're going to go international or if they're going to go international, etc. I do think that very likely it would be kind of integrated with the broader, they call it the Belt and Road Spatial Information Corridor. And there's a couple of quite good English language presentations given by the CNSA at like uh, United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs conferences. And that uh, the Spatial Information Corridor, I mean, they talk about having a, a global uh, broadband satellite network. And so it's it's one of those things where, um, I don't know, the interesting thing also could be conceivably, you know, SatNet just from, from day one decides we're going to take on a very international kind of global telco. We kind of, because I mean, and again, not, not to, it's a, I know we're wrapping up on SatNet, but but the really interesting position that they're in is that they're this kind of just uh, really probably quite well-funded telco that's being built from scratch, pretty much like Starlink to some extent, except you know, in the the sort of Chinese state-owned apparatus. But but um, they really have a blank slate, if you will, and so who knows? They might just say we're going to try to be this very international telco from day one. Although I find it unlikely. If you're building a constellation that big and it's global, uh, it just makes sense at some point that you're going to offer the services to other countries. Right. So I, I, I guess, I, yeah, and I guess I, I would say that the at the moment you do have because the, the existing two constellations that well, I guess there's a few constellations, but but you know, Cask and Kasich are the two that are really um, the most well-funded companies that are doing constellation-related things, and and they with their constellation test satellites, so Hongyan and Hongyun, and to an extent, Xingyun, have been developing different applications over the last, um, well, since they've launched test satellites in, say, 2017, 2018, and 2019. Um, and so they have very few, I mean, they have, I think, in total, four or five satellites in orbit between three of those constellations. But um, if you look at the conference presentations of the companies that are represent that are operating those, satellite, uh, those constellations, they they have been developing, a, you know, maritime-related applications and and you know, backhaul and and on other things, um, and so it's it's you know possible that they would first be developing the technology in-house or in China, let's say, and then trying to export it. Uh, and it seems like on the technology side, they're they're moving along on the application side, but yeah, All right. there's a lot of catching up to do. Um, one last uh, question on this topic, and then we'll move on. Um, and that is who would likely be some of the commercial satellite manufacturers that would benefit from this constellation? Um, so in terms of, well, so I suppose Comsat, companies like Comsat would be quite, they seem to have been pivoting towards trying to serve this type of, of, of thing for some time. Um, I suspect also kind of the, the, they're not necessarily commercial, but they're, you know, the, some of the subsidiaries of CAST or of CAST that are less, I mean, you know, the, the, there are some commercial-ish subsidiaries of CAST um, that would benefit. Um, and then, yeah, companies like Galaxy Space are, are building a, a factory for, for satellites, also companies, uh, sorry, you know, satellite manufacturing facility. Um, companies like Geespace also are, are building their own satellite manufacturing facility, Geespace being the, the space initiative of Geely, the auto manufacturer. Um, so there's a handful of those types of companies. Uh, I guess the, the the satellite manufacturers that will be less likely to benefit just because, I mean, in, in general, you say there's going to be a 10,000 satellite constellation, you know, any company building satellites should, should probably um, be doing okay. Um, but the ones that, that may not benefit directly would be companies that are quite focused on specific verticals, like CGSTL, for example, is a quite it's an advanced uh, manufacturer and satellite operator, but they are pretty much purely focused on Earth observation. And they have plans for their own constellation of 138 satellites. And so they they, they have their hands full already. But um, I, I guess they would not necessarily benefit from uh, from a Guolong type of, of constellation. All right. Let's, uh, let's actually talk about some of these other uh, companies that are doing some interesting things. Uh, I, I noticed that uh, earlier this year, SpaceD, uh, which is doing commercial synthetic aperture radar, uh, their high C1, 
uh, a C-band star uh, satellite is delivering data. Do you have any uh, any news on them? Yeah, so Space City is an interesting one. I mean, SAR is an increasingly um, it is an increasingly hot topic in the Chinese space sector. You have now uh, four, or five, maybe commercial satellite manufacturers that are either building SAR satellites already or are you know talking about doing them in the future. Um, but yeah, I mean, Space City, they, they, the SAR satellite they launched is, is a, the high C one is, is a, it's a very sophisticated satellite in terms of its, um, its capabilities. Um, I think Space City more generally is, is just a very, it's an interesting company. I mean, they're, um, they, they seem to be t- kind of on this, um, straddling this position of a satellite manufacturer and then an operator of satellites, but then not really an operator of a constellation but rather just satellites that are demonstrating very advanced technology like SAR, and, and they will eventually have, I guess, a handful of SAR satellites, but but then also having, um, like, offering things like like technology verification or technology testing on their satellite platforms because they just launch a bunch of satellites. Um, and so you're starting to see different ways of, of commercializing their business that are, I think, Pretty, pretty cutting. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's interesting stuff to watch. Some of the partners that they've, that they've found and, and some of the things they've done. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting as well to see the, uh, what was it with the, the Ever Given in the Suez Canal. I saw that uh, the Space City had their, uh, the photo from High C1 uh, alongside all of the other various Earth observation satellites that had photographed. Yeah, it seemed everybody was making sure they got their pictures out. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. It was, well, it was a captivating event, I guess. So, yeah. All right. Uh, any other constellation news that has uh, come across your radar recently? Yes, yeah, so I think the aforementioned CGSTL is is worth digging into just a little bit more. So this is a company that, again, they, their historic competence comes in set from satellite manufacturing and, and well, I guess historically their um, optical communication, and then they have taken that and gone into optical earth observation and satellite manufacturing, and they've been around for. Uh, probably about five or six years. Well, five or six years. They are a spinoff from the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which means that even before they were a company, they would have been still working as the, as the same team, building the same satellites and the same technology, just inside the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And so they um, have. So at the end of last year, they raised uh, 2.4 billion RMB, so like what almost 400 million US dollars, um, in what they call their pre-IPO round, and at, and this was the largest round of funding for any commercial space company in China uh, at the time, and, and I suppose still. Um, and then more recently, they in March of this year, they this company, CGSTL, they announced that their constellation plans, they, they were basically accelerating their constellation plans. So at the moment, they have 25 satellites in orbit, Earth observation, optical, mostly optical Earth observation satellites. Um, and they announced that they want to have 60 in orbit by the end of this year. And then they want to have their 138 satellite constellation completed by 2025, whereas previously it was meant to be 2030. And um, the 60 satellite goal for this year, I mean, I think that's quite plausible when you consider that they, like last year, for example, they launched nine of their satellites on one rocket. And it's, you know, I mean, they need four of those to get to 60. So, I mean, it's not, I, I don't think it will happen tomorrow. It might not even be more than 15% chance of making that deadline. But but uh, it's a, certainly, it's a, it's a thing to take seriously. And indeed, I think the 138 satellites within the next four years also looks quite conceivable. Um, the last point I would mention about CGSDL, we had previously done a, a deep dive on them in, in um, a Dongfang Hour uh, episode, which I do not recall the exact date. But I, uh, we, in this, we discussed a little bit the extent to which the they're from a, a very unique part of China. They're from kind of the Rust Belt, and the government in that part of China has a lot of incentive to try to attract this type of industry. And it's a very uh, the cost of living is quite low. The quality of life, if you are working for a company like that, would be very high. And if you're doing really cool space stuff and have a lot of resources from the Chinese Academy of Sciences and are just living in this, like, you know, quite okay uh, city that's, you know, uh, 
again, pretty good quality of life. I, I would think that that's a pretty good environment for interesting things to be to be done. So, so that's a company that I, I keep an eye on. Um, and again, they they continue to uh, to announce really cool stuff. And so I, I continue to be rewarded for my keeping an eye on them with uh, you know justification for doing so. So yeah, it's uh, that's been that's a CGSTL. You know. You brought up an interesting thought, which was that, um, you know, from it sounds like they won't have an issue manufacturing enough satellites to meet their target for this year. Right. Uh, which then brings up the um, uh, scheduling of the launches. So is there enough flexibility in China today that a company like that can go to whoever it is and say, hey, I need to get X number of, you know, we're May, and by the end of the year, I need to get X number of satellites launched. Is that going to be possible? Like, is there enough flexibility in, in with the launch providers to be able to do that? You know, it's it's, uh, it's funny you should ask. I, I, I recently I reached out to a friend of mine at CGSTL and congratulate. I sent to hit the the, uh, the aforementioned news update of them accelerating their constellation. I said, oh, yo, congratulations! That's really that's great news for you guys. And and. Uh, and he said, yeah, you know, we, I just hope that the launchers can, can be ready. And so, uh, I guess that is the bottleneck. Yes. And, uh, and I mean, I, I think we're starting to see, well, no, we have seen, I mean, we've seen a lot of, of launch companies come out of China, right. And we have more than 20, well, let's call it 20 commercial launch companies now. And, you know, most of them have been around for three or four or five years and, and you're getting to the point where, um, quite a few of them are going to be launching in the next year or two. And then um, you have a company, X-Space, which is a commercial subsidiary of Kasig, and they have launched, they have their Quijo 1A and then their Quijo 11, which is quite a bit larger. And the 1A, it became quite dependable. They launched maybe eight or nine or 10 in a row with um, successful launches. And then they had a launch failure in the first launch of their Quijo 11, which was a big, you know, it's a significant setback. I think they have not launched in maybe almost a year or so. Um, so that's not to say that, they, I mean, you know, X-Space is very, they have a lot of resources, they have a lot of excellent technology, um, but uh, that that will be, they will, you know, the Quijo 11, for example, getting back to flight will be a big help to that because uh, that, that can take maybe... 1,000, 1,200 kilograms into uh, into Leo. So, you know, th those kind of rockets that if they can make, you know, 20 per year, that that helps. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it, to your point, launch is certainly still the bottleneck at the moment. Um, and uh, that may change in the next say, year or two, right. I think. So uh, now you mentioned uh, companies raising money. So that was going to be my next topic. Uh, what news is there with respect to, to fundraising and and also to, to throw in there, because we'd previously talked about this uh, leading up to this interview that, you know, one of the things that's happened uh, this year is, is the Ant IPO got basically quashed. Uh, and are, are there any repercussions to that for companies, uh, space companies that are trying to get onto the, the Shanghai starboard? So two questions there, you know, what news is there in the fundraising side of things? And is there any effect uh, for them uh, going on the Shanghai starboard? Sure. So um, again, referring back to the, the EuroConsult uh, China Space Industry Report uh, quarter one edition, which we published a couple of weeks ago and which you can find on, on EuroConsult's website. Um, that report, we, we totaled Q1 2021 funding, and that was um, 975 million RMB was raised in, in Q1 of this year. And that was roughly double Q1 of 2020, which now granted that would have been uh, when China was very much in the, the sort of coronavirus lockdown, at least for the last, say, third to even half of Q1 of, of 2020. Um, but still, it, it's double of, of Q1 of 2020. And, and I guess probably more... Um, more significant by would be the um, uh, Q4 of 2020. So I guess about six, you know, well, yeah, uh, October to, to December 2020, um, the we saw like four billion RMB, so about 600 700 million US dollars uh, during during the quarter. So the last say six months, we've we've seen uh, almost a billion US dollars invested into Chinese commercial space companies, and I would say the a couple of interesting takeaways. Uh, so if we look at the the verticals that the funding is going into, 
historically, launch has been the biggest one by far. But the last six or nine-ish months, we've seen an increase in money being sp- uh, put into satellite manufacturing and, and Earth observation also. But, but satellite manufacturing has been a big beneficiary, especially with these kind of medium-sized, let's say like 30 to 50 million US dollar funding rounds. Uh, there's been quite a few of them for these more advanced satellite manufacturers. And I think that's kind of it's a reflection of... Um, the importance assigned to satellite internet by the, the National Development and Reform Commission starting in April of 2020, they added it to their new infrastructures list. And after that happened, you've seen a number of rounds where it's been a satellite manufacturing company that has announced a funding round. And they said, oh, and you know, we're, we're because of the NDRC announcing satellite internet as part of its new infrastructures, we need all these new satellites. And so, you know, we're building a satellite factory. And so, again, that, that's emerged as a, a significantly larger vertical uh, over the last six to nine months or so. Um, so yeah, I, I think in general, we've, we've seen you know, funding continue to increase. I mean, 2020 ended up being a, a pretty unbelievable year. I mean, it was about 9 billion RMB in 2020. So it's hard to say how likely it is that we will beat that number. We would need to have a couple of like really big funding rounds to beat 9 billion RMB. Um, but we're still seeing quite, I think, healthy investor interest Um in, in a lot of these these verticals. Um, and then there was a second part to your question. Or, oh, yeah, the, the starboard. And the, yeah, so, um, yeah, so that's an interesting one. So the, the, the new restrictions, they I'm kind of somewhere in between on this because part of me thinks it might be beneficial to space companies in the sense that it seems – so they, they mentioned um, – and I, I don't know. The phrasing was something like more emphasis on hardcore technology and um, – sort of less emphasis on, on very kind of software-y kind of stuff or like, I mean, FinTech definitely is, is a kind of red flag at the moment in particular if you are a company that is trying to use data to take money from banks and loan it out and be kind of a middle person but then kind of assign risk to the banks. Because anyway, um, so I, I think if anything, it's it's possible that, that this sort of more emphasis on companies doing real things, even if those real things are a little bit spacey if i can um it it could be a good thing um and i guess what will be an interesting indication is as i mentioned before cgstl the the round that they did about six months ago of funding they called it their pre-ipo round and so if they don't ipo for like a year or two then probably something has gone wrong um and then also ispace announced in like february of this year that they planned to do an IPO on the starboard. And so again, and then the, the, uh, rest- the uh, tighter re- regulations were announced in March. So um, again, if we, if we go 6, 12, 18 months and don't see iSpace IPO, then that could also be an indication that things are, are maybe less easy than they had thought they would be in, say, February. Right. Okay. Um, one or two more topics. Um, how are things going with the commercial launch sector? Any, uh, any news on that? And then related to that, of course, uh, there's this new effort to create a commercial uh, spaceport. Um, so let's tackle those two. Yeah, the commercial spaceport is exciting. So, so, um, so commercial launch sector, a lot of things going on. So we are seeing, again, there's a lot of companies just in general, there's more than 20, um, but we're getting to the point now where we're seeing more companies actually launching. So we have a company, Galactic Energy, that launched their Series 1 rocket uh, for the first time in, I think, November of last year, and they have another launch upcoming this year. And the interesting thing about Galactic Energy is that they only, they were founded in February of 2018, so they're about three years old, um, and they've already had a successful orbit the launch of their their series one rocket and then they have their their palace one which is a larger uh, liquid powered rocket that's in 2023 ish they plan to do that but um then you have uh, land space which has their jutway 2 and they plan to launch that i don't recall if it's second half this year or, or next year but basically within the next year I, they will be launching that i think in the second half of this year um and then iSpace as well with their Hyperbola 2, which is and, – and those two rockets are, are quite large. I mean, those are uh, – the, the Jutray 2, if I'm not wrong, is like four tons. So maybe four tons to Leo. It's definitely at least two tons. It's possible. But anyway, so you're seeing a lot of these companies that are that are getting quite close to launching very large – you know, relatively large rockets. Um, at the same time, you're starting to see companies like uh, Jiuzhou Yunjian is, is an example. Uh, they are – 
developing only advanced engines. So they don't have any plans to build rockets. They're just building liquid methyl ox engines. And, and they've been doing um, quite advanced testing on their, uh, I think it's the Long Yun engine. And so um, you're starting to see that. And yeah, so that's your other part of this question about the commercial spaceport. Um, so yeah, in the earlier mentioned two sessions and the, the 14th five-year plan uh, published thereat, if that, yeah, uh, um, you had, a couple of different space-related things within the five-year plan, and one of them was the the construction of a commercial launch site. And this, it was not specified where, and uh, so we, we don't know for sure. But we also saw, and this is something that I, I actually did not come across when it was published, because I don't read generally the 15-year the plans of, of medium-sized Chinese cities, but um, in my but Ningbo, uh, back in like August, September of last year, they had published their, again, it was their 2020 to 2035 medium-term development plan for new industries or something like that. And within that, uh, they, they have plans for a commercial spaceport to be built in, uh, in the Xiangshan district of, of Ningbo, which is in the east of China. It's a bit south of Shanghai. It's on the seaboard, or it's, it's on the sea. And so you could imagine being able to launch out in, into the ocean, which would be uh, helpful, or over the ocean, I guess, not into the ocean. You don't want to do that. But but um, yeah, so so again, it looks like Ningbo is, is probably going to be where they build a commercial launch site. And uh, that would be very interesting. It, and again, it's, it's um, we're seeing commercial launch companies setting up their facilities near the coast in some instances. So for example, Cast Space, that's a Chinese Academy of Sciences launch subsidiary based in Guangzhou. Um, they have built their, they're, they're on, on Nansha uh, district. It's sort of an island in the Pearl River Delta. And basically they're, I mean, you, you take a ferry or a ship and you're literally in the South China Sea and like, you know, an hour and a half um and so and, and from there it's not particularly far i mean it's, it's relatively speaking it's not that far to ningbo or to to wanchang if, if that, uh, in, in hainan um if there were to be a, a an ability to launch from there so yeah i think overall you're, you're seeing um a lot of interesting things happening in both the the kind of launch companies and related technology side of the sector and also the infrastructure side of the sector and and the interplay between those things and the way that that's all starting to come together is going to be very interesting to, to watch over the next couple of years. Now, you did say that uh, Galactic Energy, uh, I think you said, they are planning on launching again this year. Um, and I'm just looking at my schedule here of uh, upcoming launches, and I'm seeing that there's also a potential launch for LinkSpace and iSpace. Any, any other ones that are looking at launching this year? Uh, so land space with their Jujue 2, I'm quite certain I recall at a minimum having seen their CEO quoted earlier this year in a in a press conference kind of thing saying that they plan to launch the Jujue 2 within 2021. I'm like 85, 90% sure that I remember seeing that in, in such a context. Um, but other than that, this year... So again, the ones to watch, I think, also will be the be the return to flight of the Quadro Eleven at X Space because X Space is really that's a significant company. They have big plans. And that's um, like we don't have a date on that, right? Um, they tend to be because it's a Kasich subsidiary, and albeit a commercial one, they tend to be a little bit more low key about that. Um, I so I, I but I, yeah, I, not as far as I know, I I, I don't I'm not sure. I'm, my thing is just saying a TBD, so. Yeah. Yeah. So the unsuccessful maiden flight was July of last year, and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not right. sure well, when. But so, yes. but the, anyway. But it sounds like there's several. So there's, oh yeah, there's it's it's, it's, it's it, too, too many, if anything. But at the same time, you do see. Um, Again, you, you do you do hear about uh, Earth observation satellite manufacturers saying that launch is the bottleneck. So, yeah, but there, there's a lot of, of launch companies. Yeah. And, and of course, this commercial spaceport, if it comes to fruition, uh, would certainly be able to uh, take up some of that slack. Uh, but it'll be several years before that's, uh, I would assume, a couple of years at least before it's available. Yes. And I mean, really, I, I think one, one last point I would mention about the launch situation, and it's something I hadn't really considered until recently, but the extent to which... Um, so again, if we think about China wanting to... Ex so, I mean... 
whether it's the Leo Broadband constellation or whether it's the space infrastructure more generally, I think China wants to export space stuff. And so that would include things like satellites and launch and all these things. And I guess in the West, uh, companies are also trying to do this. And, and in particular, if we're thinking about the Leo Broadband constellations, you have Starlink. And the one element that, that's much, much cheaper in the West now is, is launch because of SpaceX and, and all the related technologies that have, you know, made things cheaper, and especially if you're a commercial company. And in China, launch remains very, very expensive. And so, if you, you know, that, and that, that cost will trickle down to, you know, every service that you have to sell using this satellite because it costs a lot more to get that. And so um, I think in order for China to have a, a price competitive sort of space stack to export, one of the things they're going to need to do is, is bring down the cost of launch. And so, um, maybe having an oversupply of launch companies is not going to be the worst thing in the world. Maybe we'll see, but, um, yeah. All right. So let's uh, pivot to our last topic and won't take too much time on it. Uh, and that's earth observation in China, um, from a commercial perspective. Um, I noticed in your newsletter, you mentioned, um, uh, and I'll let you pronounce their name uh, with their CEO. Yaga Tendia. Yeah. Okay. And that's, uh, and it's interesting that uh, uh, the CEO uh, used to work at NASA Ames Research Center. Um, and he gave some insights recently on the EO market in China. What, what, what can you tell us? Yes, yeah, so an interesting article. And, uh, and, and, I'm glad that you you sent this before because it gave me time to just ponder about this for just a minute, and it I, I, it's a really interesting question now that I think about it in this way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think the article, the, the big takeaway, as far as I was concerned, is that you know the the agricultural sector in China remains very very inefficient, and this is really a holdover of the way that China. Um, uh, organizes land ownership, or, or I guess it's not actually ownership, and so I'll, I'll get into that in just a second. But, but really, it, it's it's agricultural land ownership, and so the in China, there's this. Every family owns a piece of land, a piece of farmland, and it's kind of this holdover from the communist system of like if if the if the system fails you and if you can't buy a job in the city and if you can't if nothing else works, you can always go back to the little plot of family farmland and just grow rice and whatever else and, and just live on the farm. And so literally, this is a nation of, of 500 million or however many family, about 500 million, you know, very, very small plots of farmland. And, and I mean, that, and, and, and the other, so there's, there's that, and then the state still owns all of the farmland. The land is effectively just given out to people on, on long-term leases and not even that long-term leases. And this creates a couple of different interesting dynamics. So one, all the farms are, are very, small scale and relatively inefficient. And the owners don't have a whole lot of incentive to invest into a lot of long-term assets because they don't actually own the land. And it could always be like, oh, well, you're going to now get put over on this. You know, and it doesn't happen necessarily very often. Like, I don't know. I've not actually spent too much time on Chinese farms. But but in general, I, I don't know how often that does happen. But even just the possibility that it would, even like not, not having the piece of paper saying you own this land. Um, and, and it's interesting because it, it's, it, it's a different system from urban areas in China. So and in, in urban areas, you also don't own your apartments, but at least you have a 99-year lease with a piece of paper that says you have, this is, in the rural, rural land is different. It's, so this is a very weird kind of interesting thing that that um, is, well, interesting unless you're, you know, relying on rural land. Um, but digressing, the, the agricultural sector is just really inefficient and small scale. And, and, averse to large-scale capex. And at the same time, though, you have this uh, want to digitize everything in China and, and, and this need to get to have more efficient agriculture. Like there's a, you know, China, the, the Chinese government, one of the things that probably keeps them up at night, it's probably in their top 10 are our food shortages. You know, you've had them in, in, throughout Chinese history. Uh, and so you could imagine a situation where Earth observation would really uh, become quite effective at, at digitizing all of that. And, and one of the things that I was thinking about and, and in the article that you refer to, um, one of the challenges that, that they mentioned is the sort of lack of standardization and the lack of, of kind of um, digital savvy of, of, the, of the agricultural sector and all, all these things. And one of the really interesting angles maybe could be, uh, and this is really speculative and in a very specific way, but I think it's fine. Uh, like there's a company in China, a big tech company called Pinduoduo, uh, PDD, and it's a NASDAQ traded. It's worth about 150 billion US dollars. Like it is a big company, even if I, I have 
doubts about the valuation. If even if it's worth a third of that, it's still a very big company. And they are a they got their start as like a sort of agricultural co-op. I mean, they were basically trying to to have an e-commerce site for things like strawberries and, and other ag, fresh agricultural products. And they've since expanded into like group buying and all these different things. But they're now kind of taking a step back and and going back towards agriculture. And their CEO, who's a he's worth about forty fifty billion dollars, and he's like thirty one years old. No, like that could be wrong. He's about thirty eight. But anyway. Um, He's taken a step back from the company. He's trying to focus on their next, like, very, very long-term areas of growth. And my my kind of speculation is that it would be pretty cool to see Pinduoduo get involved in Earth observation. And I did a, a Baidu search before, you know, just ten minutes before we, we started talking, to see if there's, you know, any news articles about Pinduoduo in space or you know Earth observation. And there's nothing. And I, I mean, I wasn't a very deep search, but seemingly nothing. And so my I'm I'm waiting to see when somebody in Pinduoduo when it clicks with them that wait a minute we could use Earth observation data and 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 get this degree of of granularity of crop information and if we're trying to digitize every, and, and I mean they're such a digitally native company and I mean they're a very young company so they don't have such you know well established company culture I guess you could say and I don't know how correct it is but they're a really young company but but anyway. Um, that was my my kind of really most speculative thought for the day was, you know, when are we going to see Pinwood Wall get involved in Earth observation? Because it seems very well aligned with their business. And and just a, one last point on that. Um, I, I did find uh, one article that was talking about Pinduoduo having met with the uh, the Bureau of Agriculture, I think it was, the Ministry of Agriculture, um, about you know digital farm you know the digital farm initiative and having you know bringing IoT type things in the farm and all these things so so again it's it's really it, it's in their wheelhouse uh, I don't know uh, whether that will happen or not it's always fun to make such speculations and, and then in the three percent chance that I'm dead on I can come back and say man that was but anyway um, all right but the point we'll being though is that Earth observation and taking advantage of the data. Um, in particular with the agricultural sector, there is an opportunity there uh, for everybody. Yes, and and I think also, yeah, uh, thank you for bringing that back to uh, to a space angle because I got pretty deep into the China weeds there. Um, yeah, the, there's, there's that, yes. And then also I would point out one last thing with EO is that there's a lot of demand in China for um, provincial and city governments type projects for Earth observation. And part of the reason for that is because the, these, the governments in China are they're quite large in terms of their their the percentage of people that they employ in a province, for example. If you think about the number of, of security guards, the number of, of city employees in a it is astonishing how many people the state employs. And so they have big budgets and they have a lot of inefficiencies that could be made less inefficient, I think, through the use of things like EO. And so you are seeing now a lot of, and when I say a lot, let's say one or two per month announcements of, you know, this or that Earth Observation Data Analytics Company signs a contract with the relatively local government bureau to do, again, like crop monitoring or or some, you know, related uh, yeah, so so the, the the sort of local, provincial, city governments are are a big source of, of demand as well for that. Hmm. All right, I, I think uh, we'll we'll leave it at that. Uh, um, we there's so much to to cover in China. We only do it. You do it on a weekly basis on your podcast and now your newsletter. Um, but for the, our podcast, we only uh, revisit it every couple months. So we'll have to shorten the time frame between our next uh, discussion on this because it's happening so fast. Um, anyway, uh, thank you, Blaine, for your your insights. Um, and uh, we will chat again, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later. Sounds good. And indeed, it is uh, all China all the time. And we also do the uh, the year at a quarterly basis at Euroconsult in our very deep dive report, which has also a lot of good Euroconsult facts and figures. So um, I, 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 there's a lot of, yeah, I spend a lot of time on this. So happy to come back and talk about it more. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send us an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Help others discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use. Talk to you next week.